I'm doing that that dastardly dog <laughs> laugh that I do. <laughs> dastardly dog. Remember that cartoon where the little I dog know what you would, mean. I don't. Oh, that's, think that's not his name. name. <laughs> we just would like to remind you that none of the things that we say should be taken as official recommendations. We try to know what we're talking about, but this podcast ultimately represents the opinions of a couple yahoos with master's degrees. It's (laughs) mainly for entertainment. Right. So if you feel that you need help with your own mental health, we encourage you, please talk to your very own doctor or your very own counselor. Get real help. And remember, this podcast is not safe for work, so listen with headphones. Hello and welcome to Freudian Sips, the podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Anna. What episode are we on? We're on 60. I kind of thought so. And that seems like a big deal. It's a multiple of 10. (laughs) Indeed. I put away my calculator. (laughs) 60 seems like an important number. Like we should have like a little... What do you... Okay. You've said that many of these numbers are important numbers. What do you qualify as an important number? Well, multiples of 10, basically. That's kind of what... well, that's kind of what Which I is thought. What you just said, but then when I so. said that, you looked at me like I was weird. I was trying to think of another. <laughs> I wasn't looking at you like you were weird. I was looking at you like I want to do math right now. <laughs> it's also and a multiple of six. <laughs> that's exactly what I was doing in my head. Five uh, twenty. It's always oh, a multiple of five. Okay. If it's a multiple, multiple of, of ten. ten. Two. Two. <laughs> that's a safe bet. That's every other episode. Let's figure out the factors. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I was. I was Twelve not, and five. Ooh. ooh. <laughs> Those 12 tables, they always kind of throw me for a loop. <laughs> every episode is significant, Anna Marie. You because said Because it's last. time with you. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. It's my self-care time of my week with my perfect daughter, and me i'm also here <laughs> sorry kid i only have one daughter so nope. you got to be the perfect one oh, that's too much pressure i don't like it <laughs> that's why you have anxiety yeah <laughs> okay hey yeah this episode might be shorter because i impulsively joined another D group because that's one of my self-cares and so i was like i want to join another one actually one of the it wasn't super impulsive michelle and i wanted to play together my other daughter that's not actually my daughter. daughter, so that's why I don't call you perfect, Michelle. But that doesn't mean you aren't perfect, because you probably are. She is. Okay. We actually met playing D&D, but our game that we were in together ended quite a while ago. So we've been wanting to play together. We finally found a game that we can. Hmm. It's fun. Good. I also linked my D&D group to my podcast, so if you guys are listening, what up? <laughs> I was just about to say something about you being a nerd, but if, if your friends are... No, that's a fair I assessment. Shouldn't, <laughs> but you enjoy that, don't you? I do. I feel. I feel like that part in Brooklyn Nine Nine where Rosa gets the dog, and she's like, "I've only had this dog for six hours, but if anything happened to him, I would kill everyone in this room and then myself." Oh. And, <laughs> and I feel like that about this group, even though I've only played with them like two times already. It's like, ah, yes. 
They're if a anything group, happened huh? to this group, I would kill everyone in this room and then myself. <laughs> All right, settle down. All right. Okay. What are we talking about today? It's kind of a weird one. It is. You know, we should maybe give a... A disclaimer? A warning. Trigger a trigger warning. warning. Yeah. Because some of this today gets a little triggery. Gets a, we're we're going to talk about neglect and abuse and stuff like that yes. a little later on. But we will try to do it in a not too graphic way. But it's kind of worth mentioning because of the ramifications of it. Right, so right. I want you to understand that if we bring up abuse, it's not to be graphic for the sake of being graphic. It's mm-hmm. because that gives important context to what we talk about after it. It's a good way to say it. But that's not, it's not like we're talking specifically about abuse or neglect. We are talking today about feral children. Mm-hmm. What's the definition of feral? I actually looked it up like I'm like I'm an eighth grader doing a fir- my first speech in front of the class. Webster's Dictionary Webster's says. Webster's Dictionary says feral is especially often animal in a wild state, especially after escape from captivity or domestication. Flip the note card. <laughs> is that how you talked in eighth grade? Yeah, I that's how I sounded that. in eighth grade. I do not remember that. That's voice. how I sounded until like two years ago. Oh. <laughs> You got your master's degree and bam, your voice I got changed. my, my grown-up voice then. <laughs> they gave it to you with your diploma. Here, you're going like, to need this well, voice. I can't, can't wait until I graduate. And then they gave me the diploma. I'm like, oh, thank you. Oh, I'm a counselor Thank you now. so much. <laughs> Hello. I have a master's I degree. I am a counselor now <laughs> and uh, I speak like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about feral... It's kind of a misnomer. Like when we talk about feral children, that's its own thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how ubiquitous this concept is. Like I've known about feral children for a while, even before we kind of did study them a little bit in our master's program, actually. But I've known about them for a while. I don't know if a lot of people do. Is that a thing that just is common knowledge? Well, I think because there have been movies and documentaries and those kind of things i guess i don't think i think it's more like they understand the concept right but i not. think it's more like um kind of a fictional you yeah know, like that's a, a something that they would base a movie on right or something. and it's not super common right. <laughs> i mean right. it's rare enough to be notable. It's I not guess. something that probably is going to be part of your everyday life. You're probably not going to know a feral child. Well, <laughs> if you're a you teacher, might. you probably have known you at least. You might know a feral child. <laughs> or if you're at home uh, during the quarantine and uh, your own children have become feral. <laughs> I think everyone's a little feral right now. I think we're all kind of feral children because, like, no one can get haircuts and, like, we. <laughs> We like, I haven't put on makeup for a week, so I do look like I've been living in the woods. It's pretty bad. That's just, feral child is just quarantine look. It's just quarantine chic. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess I should clarify what I mean when I say feral child. Yes, please do. (laughs) Okay. So uh, like I said, that's the definition of feral is that you're you're in a wild state um, or you're animalistic is kind of the other definition of it. So a feral child at its most basic is a child who was either lost or abandoned or was otherwise raised in extreme social isolation. Mm. Uh, I think the context that most people do think of it when they do think of it, if they do, or if I'm just weird because I listen and watch a lot of weird things. <laughs> 
Uh, but they, they think of it in the context of, like, children raised by animals. Right. Like, that's, I guess, what feral children are often depicted as. Yeah. And there's actually several examples of that, which I will get into in a moment, but that's not necessarily all the cases. There's also many cases of kids becoming basically feral children due to extreme abuse or neglect, which is why we gave you guys the disclaimer, because right. we are going to talk about a case where that is what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to talk about a case where they were raised by animals, specifically. We're not going to deep dive into one, at least. But we are going to deep dive into a case where there was a lot of neglect. So this kind of ties, we often, in episodes, refer in some way to the whole idea of nature versus nurture. Yeah. And this is like very wound up together with that. Yeah. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. And a lot of the what we have gleaned from feral children cases is how we think about socialization. Mm-hmm. Like the cases themselves usually aren't super well documented. But from what we do know, it's further evidence that human connection is very important. And what that connection does for us in terms of how we learn how to be human. Right. Because it turns out, shock and awe, a lot of what makes us human is <laughs> like learned behavior. <laughs> I mean, is learning to be human from other humans. Exactly. Because that nature versus nurture thing, nature is that we are social creatures and right. that we do long to be in a social setting. But the nurture part is that it's learned behavior, how we communicate and the like social mores kind of like what is acceptable in society Mm -hmm. and how to act and how to speak i mean language acquisition is really important right um like like language and social skills basically are the root of communication and social behavior i feel like we talk about that a lot that we're social creatures that i it just keeps coming back i think it's really significant yeah it's like one of the core things about being a person And we start learning that stuff even from when we're tiny little babies. Mm -hmm. Because we think like, so we've talked about before the concept of, it's called faceness, where we're drawn to see human faces. That's kind of also the root of why we see faces and like, you know, why we see Jesus and toast and stuff. Yeah. Because we're like, our our brains are trained to see faces and things. Mm-hmm. We're so looking that's, for the face. Yeah. And even when we're very little babies, when our vision doesn't even go that far. I like how every time you say very little. Very little. <laughs> you called me on that when we talked about babies in that one episode. You said, I apparently do it every single time. Very little babies. Just in case any little babies are listening, I want them to know I'm talking about them. Babies, this is your voice. Little babies, little don't babies. be listening. <laughs> little babies, don't listen to this <laughs> Babies, podcast. don't listen. What's up, you cool babies? Yeah, don't listen. So you're at least 18, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but we have that faceness thing when we're babies that mm-hmm. we look for human faces naturally. But then that is enforced by what the people around us do. Mm-hmm. The, that they use that natural looking for faces and mutual gazing and all that stuff. Mom, what's mutual gazing? I know you perked up. You love that concept. I do. When you hold your little baby in your arm. See, and you, you do both it too. just look at each other. <laughs> you just look at each other because you love each other so much. That's, you, just, you and me used to do that. We still do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. Mutual gazing is just looking. <laughs> just looking into each other's baby. eyes and loving each other. It's so important. <laughs> and that's why God put our breasts right where they are so that while the baby's right there, they can mutual gaze. I guess that I is mean, he why. could like put them somewhere else on your body. On your back? No. <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> but yeah. In your elbows? Yeah, God had a plan. 
Now I'm just going to be, this is the whole episode. I'm just going to be talking about other other places milk could come out of. (laughs) Noses. Babies could just latch onto. Now that would be mutual gazing. Just latch right onto those. those. That would be like, oh my gosh. We should stop. This is reminding me of the the tennis pod bit where... (laughs) If you've never listened to the Tendish podcast, that you should. First of all, they're great. But Nick has a whole bit where he talks about what if all the water on the planet was replaced with peanut butter. <laughs> and he just he talks about it for so long. Just like Some things can take you into very long. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So we'll, we'll stop at that. Highly worth talking mutual about. Mutual gazing is lovely, though. It's mutual. It's a lovely it's thing. Uh, mutually lovely. And... <laughs> And that process of like basically building people into the social sphere is called enculturation. That's where we grow up. You're just throwing around terms like a ching a ching a ching. I know. I know. It's like a I do. textbook. Listen, that's all I have this episode <laughs> is terms. I don't have other than that. So because we have uh, feral children cases, like I said, not super well documented, but we have enough that it's caused scientists to theorize that there's a critical period for human socialization. Mm -hmm. It's actually called the critical Critical period period. hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so we talked about this a little bit in our Erickson series, Uh which... Every time we mention the Erickson series, I feel compelled to say that was too much. <laughs> you there feel was... like apologizing. Well, I know, like, hey guys, sorry about the Erickson series. <laughs> Although those were some of my favorites. More I have than to be we honest. can chew. Yes. They were good. But specifically episodes 17 and 18, when we talk about babies and infants, like that's when we talk about those stages. But that series goes from episode 17 to 21. So, again, much. <laughs> There's much of it. There is. But there's much to Erickson, so. Yeah, there is. But but we Stay do talk fault. about that then, how we think of those periods as not being super significant because, well, I can't even remember them. But that's when a lot of our learning happens. Right. Like a huge bump in our learning happens. Mm-hmm. And so it's during these early years that we learn language. And if we don't, it kind of leads to brain abnormalities. So, I mean, there's there's just a lot that we have to pack into our little brains at that time. And so even people who may not know about feral children as a concept, like you said, would probably be aware of the fictional depictions of feral children. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a couple of them. So let's talk about Mowgli from the Jungle Book and Tarzan from Tarzan. Tarzan. It's actually Tarzan of the Apes. There you go. I was doing Both my guess. jungle children. Jungle children. <laughs> and these stories and also kind of other depictions in folklore and media, like even media depictions of actual cases, kind of show feral children as, okay, they first show them as very strong survivors, which is right. true. Like, sure. They would have to be. Yes. Absolutely. But they also show them as like pretty well adjusted yeah. and just given the slightest opportunity will slip very easily into human culture right think of that like me tarzan you jane thing (laughs) and like you wish jane you wish that's how it worked (laughs) it's not how it works it's not how it works yeah and then like there's i'm thinking okay what i am thinking of is the uh brendan fraser movie tarzan oh remember yeah was he tarzan well who was george of the jungle george of the jungle yeah you're right it wasn't oh yeah yeah, but he, he was a Tarzan it was a Tarzan type situation figure, yes. But there's like, and yeah, she just meets him and he's he's speaking she like, like an ape, and then suddenly he's right, yeah. and then like takes him to New York. And I yeah. mean, granted, that movie's a comedy, so okay, fine. But <laughs> <laughs> but like 
technically it's, speaking, it wouldn't work that way. Right. Not yeah. how it yeah. works. Not how and it works. And they probably wouldn't look like Brendan Fraser either. No, probably not. I mean. Growing up in the jungle. Yeah, no. They'd be a little rough around buff. the edges. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, the buffness might be part right. of it. Right. But no, they won't look like Brendan Fraser. Unfortunately. Darn. Right. <laughs> But most feral children actually suffer a lot of impairments. They suffer, obviously, mental impairments. They have diminished language ability. They have lack of social skills because of just not being able to engage in that enculturation process. Right. right. And they actually usually have a lot of physical problems as well. And that increases kind of the longer they've been feral children. Mm-hmm. Like, the longer they've been in that environment and kind of been separated from human culture. And they haven't had health care at all, if you think about right. that. I mean, just Teeth, a, probably real bad. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Brendan Fraser has gorgeous teeth. He does. I don't think yes. it would look like that. If His he hair's was... perfect. It's, yeah. all very, <laughs> it's all very unrealistic. And some children have indeed exhibited animalistic behaviors. The, the feral children that were raised by animals have, mm-hmm. like, walked on all fours. Some have done, like, barking and hissing and kind of the animal noises, uh, sleeping on the floor. There have even been physical abnormalities like musculoskeletal abnormalities, motor impairments, sensory processing issues. I mean, think about if you were walking on all fours all the time. Mm-hmm. Your spine would be totally different than, like, an upright human spine. Exactly. So there's a lot of like actual physical changes that happen. Not mm-hmm. like werewolf style. That's not what I mean. <laughs> but like there. Unless you were raised by werewolves. Unless you were raised. <laughs> then you become a werewolf, I guess. Yeah. I don't think you're raised by werewolves. I think you just become a werewolf. <laughs> Oh, the werewolves, how, how the werewolves, werewolves are all sitting around one night and a feral child wanders in. And <laughs> like, <laughs> Let's just raise this feral child as a werewolf, we? Don't have we? To do, we don't have to turn him into a werewolf. Let's just see how this goes. This could be an experiment. This is they interesting. Say to each other. This is interesting. <laughs> and then someday, Anna and Bonnie will do an episode about how ethical you know, this guys, experiment maybe was. Maybe if we do this, we'll get on Freudian sips one day. I don't think so, but okay, sorry. <laughs> Which part? Which part? That there's werewolves <laughs> or that they listen to Freudian sips? If there are werewolves, I'm pretty sure they do listen because they would be cool. Listeners, you're all werewolves now. You're all honorary werewolves. If you werewolves. know a werewolf who listens to Freudian sips, tweet us. Please tweet us. <laughs> please. On so many levels. On so many. Email us, call us, do you want my cell phone number? Please. Come to my house. Come sorry. to my house, bring the werewolf. <laughs> Bottom line, being socially isolated is bad. <laughs> I, I think the we're all feeling this, this right now. This feral theme is like coming through very loud and clear today. We are today. feral We're right a little now. feral today. Yeah. I'm I think everyone's that. becoming a little feral. I had one of my clients today who was like, I got in my car to come here today and I, I realized I kind of forgot how to drive. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, just hasn't driven for a long time. So oh, man. we're all a little bit feral. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, like I said before, is that the documentation that we have about known feral child cases begins when the children are discovered, especially because of the lack of language acquisition now there have been feral child cases where they do acquire language and they do kind of tell their story but a lot of them we don't know what it's like for them to be raised in that environment we don't really have a lot of information because we can't because they can't communicate on our level Mm -hmm. so a lot of it is just we know what it's like after they were 
taken in or rescued or however you want to say it. I think maybe for some of those kids, it doesn't feel like rescuing. It feels like being ripped out of your home. Exactly. But we just have to kind of speculate what happened in the interim. But like, obviously, we don't have to confirm that they don't get language acquisition and human socialization. Like we can see that even when they're picked up. Right. But there's other unknown variables that we may not know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we probably don't know their diet. We don't know... If there was any, like, medicine, if they used tools to, like, how much of their... And that depends case by case, too. And you don't and you don't know at what state were they... When they were born, what was their mental... Right. Um, yeah. Aptitude. If there's order. underlying right. medical or mental problems or anything yes. like that. So there's just a lot, a lot that we don't of know. unknown. But... The unknown. The one case that we do know is a very famous case, and that this is the one that we studied when we were in our grad program. So do you want to talk about that case a little bit? I will. This one gets deep. This one's this hefty. This a deep one. And so maybe you have heard of this study. I, I kind of wanted to start by saying, you know, one of the things that we have talked about a couple of times when we talk about experiments, we talk about um, how certain studies and experiments are unethical. And one of the kind of studies that would be very unethical would be a study to try to figure out this whole critical period hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Because if you wanted to actually make an experiment, you would have to be very unethical in the treatment of those children that you right. would be studying. So obviously, they had never really done a study like that. There is none out there that we can talk about. But this story that I'm going to tell you about was kind of like the scientists, the psychologists, the linguistic people got the study laid in their lap right. by finding On a silver girl. platter. Exactly. So the story kind of, when it came to the attention of the people in the world, was in November of 1970 when a woman came into social services to try to get help. And actually, and, and I'll kind of go back and forth on this story, but I will tell you that the mother accidentally went into the wrong offices of social services. She was trying. She was almost completely blind. And she was trying to go to get aid as a blind person. She had her child with her. And she accidentally went into the social services office that would have taken care of children who were in distress. I, you know you know how I feel about spirituality. So I'm like, this is totally a God thing. God was like, here, here's the Wait, story. she had this child with her? She had this child with her. Yeah. This child we're going to call Jeannie because that's the pseudonym that they gave to her to protect her identity throughout what we're going to talk about today. We do talk about her parents' real names. So, but anyway, they deserve it. <laughs> they really deserve it. When this little girl came into social services with her mother, the people immediately in the office, you know, felt like we're this like, was the issue. Ding, 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 right, ding, ding. Right, right. So at first, the people in the office assumed that she was on the autism spectrum. They discovered almost immediately that she couldn't talk. She was incontinent and she was salivating and spitting. As they tried to talk to her, they noticed right away that she had two full sets of teeth, uh, which actually... Like a shark? <laughs> it's no, I, I know I probably won't say it right. Supernumeraries. It's a rare dental condition where your permanent teeth grow in while your baby teeth are still in there. So you have like two full rows of teeth. Okay, that wasn't due to anything no. wrong, right? Well, anything except that they she did, had, she had no. No, it's a it's a issue that some people right. get. Even her if baby they have, teeth would have fallen out right. anyway. But nobody was taking her to the well, dentist sure, to take yes. care of it. Yeah. She could barely chew or swallow. She could not focus her eyes or extend her limbs at all. Oh, my God. She weighed about 59 pounds. Oh, my God. And they thought she was about six or seven years old, but she was actually 13 years old. 59 pounds. 
Social services obviously immediately became involved in this situation. And it kind of hit national news immediately, of course. So this is November 1970. So I was under the impression she never left her house. Why was mom taking her Mm. around? This was the first time that mom had decided to get out. Mom had decided to finally get out. And it was more for herself than the child. Sure. By this time, and I will come back around to this, there was one other child in the home who was now 18, and he had run away. He was out of the house. How about if we back up? Okay. Back the train up a little bit. Okay, okay. Because this is a lot. There's just a lot. I just... (laughs) So let's let's talk about what, what had happened before they stumbled into the social services office. Um, And we'll talk first about Jeannie's father. His name was Clark Wiley. He grew up in foster homes in the Pacific Northwest. His father was killed when he was just a little child by lightning, which is a freak way to die, right? And his mother ran a brothel. Oh, dear. So he's got a lot going on. He kind of bounced, as many foster children do, kind of bounced from one house to another. And as the story goes, his mother named him. And the way that... I looked in three different sources, and they would just say his mother named him a feminine name, which caused him to be very bullied in his childhood. There was one place that it said the name was Claire, but I didn't see that anywhere else. So I don't, I'm not 100% sure what the name was, but it was a girl's name. She named him a girl's okay. name. As soon as he became 18, he changed his name to Clark. Oh, okay. But by that time, the abuse of having a girl's name and growing up in the foster system and all that, having a mother who ran a brothel, I'm sure there was just a lot going on. Um, Psychologists who studied this case said that, obviously, Jeannie's father was very mentally ill and had huge anger issues. Um, He worked as a machinist on aircraft assembly lines in L.A. during and after the Second World War, and he married Irene Oglesby, who uh, had migrated to California during... During the Dust Bowl situation. She was 20 years younger than him. Yeah, we always kind of have that. Yeah, that thing. So as the story goes, obviously Clark was a very controlling man. He didn't did not want to have children. He had a very bizarre relationship with his mother like, until she like was psycho. Like it's what? pretty creepy. Uh, I'll tell you something about that in just a second. Okay. Oh man, there's so many pins. There's so many things here. So even though he didn't want to have children, they started to have children. The first baby that was born was a baby girl. She died just very shortly, like weeks, maybe a month or so afterwards, because he put her in the garage because she <gasps> didn't. he didn't want to hear her crying. And so she died in the garage. Second baby died just a few days after birth. There was an RH thing going on with mom, you know, when babies have a different RH factor. Oh, I can never remember what that's called. Have heard of that, but yeah. So they didn't get treatment for the second baby, and and the baby died very quickly, just a few days after. Okay, nineteen seventies social service. No, no, this would have been like in the early sixties. Okay, no, not even that, because the little girl was born in fifty-seven. So this would have been the fifties. Okay, was social service is not a thing then? Well, they weren't obviously involved. Uh, Babies died. Yeah, I mean, were they probably at home? They just buried them in the backyard. They didn't tell anyone. I didn't. I didn't read about that. I got enough to cover. <laughs> okay, I'm just freaking out. Okay, this seems like a this thing is, that should have been caught earlier. There's a lot of bad things that there's didn't go. A lot of that bad didn't get things. caught. Little Jeannie was living in major abuse for 13 years. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah there's yeah. a lot that social services was not involved with for whatever reason. Okay. So the third baby was a little boy. 
John, and he survived. He's the one that escaped. Even though he, yeah, he, even though he had some health issues early on, he survived. And five years after he was born in 1957, Jeannie was born. Right. Okay. She was 13 okay. and 70. Right. Okay. Yeah. So she, so she was born in 1957. I'm going to come back to like Jeannie's health and everything later. Let me just kind of still stay on Clark for a moment. In 1958, Clark's mother was killed by a drunk driver. And she was actually walking with little John, who would have just been like five or six years old. And they were walking together and his mother got killed. I don't know how John escaped. Maybe he got hit too, but he didn't. Because what happened was Clark kind of blamed little John for this. And started to become very abusive toward John. I might just throw in at this point that even by now, there was a lot of abuse going on in the home with Irene. He was beating her senseless pretty regularly when Irene was a little girl she had some kind of accident that caused some neurological damage that affected her eyesight so she was kind of losing her vision even when she married him okay however obviously it didn't help to get the crap beat out of her every single day and so her already damaged eyesight became really bad even at the time that Jeannie would have been a baby. Right after his mother was killed, he flipped out, basically. Lost his mind. He lost his mind. He started brutalizing John regularly because he blamed him. The young man who was the drunk driver only got like probation, which flipped him out completely. He quit his job and they moved into his mother's home where no one was allowed to go into his mother's room. He kept it like a shrine. And even though they had her car there, nobody was allowed to touch her car. Like he left it sitting right where she had left it and it was like a shrine to her. That is very psycho. It is a little psycho. It is very Norman Bates. That's why I kind of came back around to that. So by this time, little Jeannie would have been about 20 months old. And when they moved into this home, that's when the real abuse started for her. Clark would put her into a, she lived basically for basically a lot. 13 years. 13 years in this small bedroom that was isolated from the rest of the house. The rest of the family slept in the living room because the grandma's room was a shrine. So during the day, he would harness her to a potty seat. It was kind of a straight jacket kind of setup. At night, she would sleep in uh, her crib where there was like wire mesh over the top of the crib and around the sides of the crib. Like a cage? Like a cage. As they studied, and this is kind of like what you said before, when you start to study someone who's nonverbal, you can't say like, what happened? Right. Or, you know, and so when they did start to study what had happened there, they had to kind of piece this all together. Well, and that's, I mean, even to a much lesser extent, that's really hard to work with children who are victims of any kind of abuse because literally even if they are raised well, they don't have the vocabulary exactly for that i mean this is that times a thousand Mm -hmm. because they literally can't speak so yeah it's not like anyone could say to genie like tell us what happened what happened exactly well and also that probably was normal to her that was her world yeah yeah so basically speaking we have this mentally ill man who is very angry and brutally abuses his son and his wife and extreme abuse to the daughter neglect and neglect yeah. that's a good way to say it and and abuse and and basically they were completely kept from society they never went out anywhere he was the only one who really left the house and they were basically threatened you know that he would kill him if they if they would tell anybody he completely kept her as as we know in in abusive relationships kept her from her family completely she had not talked to her family for years and years and years and she was basically blind by the time Jeannie was around 20 months or so so oh, already? she couldn't do wow. much of anything and was kind of at his mercy so let me back up and and kind of talk about 
about Jeannie herself as a little child when she was born we do know like some things from her first like 18 months because they did see a doctor about a couple things when she was born she was at the 50 percentile for weight when she was three months old she did go to a medical appointment and she was gaining weight normally but they found and the reason that they were being specific to the doctor was that she had a congenital hip dislocation and that required her to wear a splint from the time she was four and a half months to 11 months. And the splint caused Jeannie to be late walking, obviously. She didn't walk like a normal child, like a normal child, whatever that is. Benchmarks. The researchers who studied Jeannie believe that this was part of what led her father to believe that Jeannie was, in his words, mentally retarded. And so he started to, well, some researchers said that he was trying to protect her from the world. Others say that he didn't want the world to know that she was disabled in some way. And to kind of add add an extra insult to injury, as a result of, of this decision that his daughter was mentally retarded, he decided to stop talking to her. He wouldn't speak to her and he discouraged his wife and his son from ever speaking and they would even be punished if they spoke in her presence. Oh my God. So like they couldn't just have a conversation in her presence. They weren't supposed to talk around her. What did he think that would do? Why? Why? That's why? Th- that's a good question. And that's when you say it's hard to say why when there's someone has a severe mental illness because there is no why. Yeah. There's no logical explanation. That's true. He was somehow trying to punish her, okay. I think. Yes, you know. that's what it sounds like. Yeah. It sounds like punishment. Exactly. There are records that show that at least for the first few months, Jeannie's was developing somewhat normally except for the hip thing. At 11 months old, they were going to take the splint away and they reported that she was in overall good health. She had no noted mental abnormalities, but she had fallen to the 11th percentile for weight. So they were, she was starting 11th? to show signs of being malnourished. That wasn't a mark for like... See? You would think. But I would say, again, in the 60s, it's not near what it is now. When wild, it comes wild to, west. Yeah, it kind of was. So when Jeannie was 14 months old, she came down with a severe fever and pneumonia, and her parents took her to the pediatrician, which kind of surprises me, actually. And at that time, the pediatrician, duh, said that she was possibly mentally retarded because of some of the way she was reacting. How old? Uh, 14 months. So by this time, she was not yet confined in that little room. We're not there yet because I went back to talk about how it started. Okay. But when this pediatrician said, well, you know, she's kind of behind on things, but she was already showing signs of malnutrition. Okay, but... So she wasn't being cared for well. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not like they went from zero to 100 where they were like, oh, doting on her and raising her really well to locking her in a cage. Like they were clearly neglecting her. Right, exactly. And like it said early on, he didn't want children anyway. Right. He didn't want kids. Then when they when they moved to the house when she was 20 months old, that's when the hell started for her. You know, when he would put her in this straight jacket, in this harness. Um, she wore only diapers during this time and she couldn't like get up and walk around. She could move her arms and legs a little bit, but she was very confined. At night, this gets a little graphic, guys. At night, he would tie her into a sleeping bag and then place her in that. He would tie her into the sleeping bag and put her in that crib that had the metal screen covering over so that her arms and legs could could not move all during the night. And sometimes the researchers believed with some later insight that perhaps there were nights that she would just be still sitting on that child's toilet all night long. The researchers came to the conclusion as they as they worked with Jeannie that if she would vocalize or make any noises, her father would beat her. 
um, often with a large stick that she would refer to later. And when she could communicate better, she would talk about the stick that her dad had. To keep her quiet, this is really bizarre. To keep her quiet, he would bare his teeth and bark and growl at her like a dog. And he grew his fingernails out so he could scratch her to punish her. Yeah. So he was a feral child. Exactly. As a result of this, two things, obviously. One is that she learned to make as little noise as possible. For sure. And she would really not show any affect at all. She had no expression on her face. Also that she had a terrible fear of dogs and cats, which Uh, they worked on in their treatment. Gina also developed a tendency to masturbate in socially inappropriate contexts, like often. But it led the doctors to seriously consider that maybe she was being sexually abused by her father Uh. and maybe even her brother at some Mm. point. Although, there's not any proof of that. That was just something that the researchers kind of linked to that I mean, it's not a far stretch of the imagination to say, like, if they were already being so terrible to her. Exactly. So throughout this time of her life, and I'm I'm talking like most of the 13 years, they didn't feed her solid food. She would eat like baby food and cereal. Yeah, because it said she could barely chew. Right. It probably hurt to chew if she had extra teeth. Just the teeth thing hurts me to think about. I know. About. It really is, is terrible. Overall, Jeannie's father obviously had an extremely low tolerance for noise. They didn't have a television or a radio. They had nothing in the house that would make noise. And his wife and son were forbidden to speak in a normal tone. I wonder if he was schizophrenic. Mm. Yeah, I didn't read much about like how, if they tried to figure out what his diagnosis would be. But whew. So the room that Jeannie was in was always very dark. The only thing in the room was the crib and the chair. There were curtains on each of the windows. And this is weird. Two plastic rain jackets hanging on the wall. On rare occasions, she was allowed to play with plastic food containers or old spools of thread, TV guides, although the pictures had been cut out of them. What? And sometimes she could play with the raincoats if she was really good. What? Where, how did these thoughts come to him? That's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Two of the windows in the room were almost completely blacked out, but there was a third window that was left slightly opened. The house was quite a distance from the street and the other houses, but the researchers said that from the room, Jeannie could have seen like the side of a neighborhood house and just a few inches of sky. Oh. And she could probably hear the sounds from outside, like, you know, children playing in the neighborhood oh. and things like that. Oh. This is interesting because they mentioned this in one of the articles, but then they I couldn't find any other information about it. Throughout the time while Jeannie was growing up, her father kept detailed notes chronicling his mistreatment of the family. What? And his efforts to conceal it. Okay, that. Okay, that. Okay, okay. Who? Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I'm all shaky. The concealment shows that he knows it was wrong. That's very insightful. Yeah, because why would he try to conceal it if he thought that it was what he should be doing? Yes, if he if he's saying, I'm doing this for these reasons. I mean, like like you said, we can't know, there's not logical reasons. Right. But to a mentally ill person, those reasons seem right. Right. Uh, wait, I don't... So, so what happened in November of 1970 was they had a big argument. God only knows what the argument was about. Why they didn't at even, what point? What the, I was what the say, bar what, is? What, like what? What tips you? In yeah, that what's scale? the? Where's the? Where's your line here, lady? <laughs> oh God, he bought the wrong kind of milk. <laughs> that does it. That does it. I'm oh out. Oh my gosh! But she at that point. 
told him that she wanted to talk to her parents. And he basically had said no, but she was in this place where he left the house for something, probably to go get the right kind of milk. I don't know. <laughs> and she she escaped. By this time, the son had run away several times, but had at this point in time managed to be able to stay away. He was 18 at this point. So at that point, it's not running away. It's just leaving the house. Right. So this is a weird part of the story too. The weirdest parts don't have a lot of explanation. So she takes this little girl and goes to her parents' house. She has not really spoken to her parents for years. They've probably never seen this child. This child who looks like she's six or seven years old and weighs 59 pounds but is 13 years old and is obviously very feral right. looking. Well, maybe the mom wasn't aware of that if she was She couldn't blind. see. Exactly. So, But that's what I'm saying. So she goes to her parents' house. Do they not go, What's wrong with that kid? Holy crap. Yeah. You know, but then, like, after she's with her parents for a day or so is when she goes to social services, apparently because the parents are like, you got to you gotta get some financial help if you want to stick around here. Oh, my God. So maybe they got stuff, too. I don't know. Okay, so once, now we're to the to the 19, we're in November 1970. Get her they're out of the, this. Get her out the, of it. They're in the social services office, and eventually they bring charges against both mom and dad. The day that they are going to go to court to bring these charges... Clark commits suicide. He shoots himself and dies. And then the people who have kind of taken over, because Jeannie very quickly became a ward of the court and she was moved to LA's Children's Hospital. Sure. And immediately there's this swarm of all these people who want involved because it kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning of the story. And that is this is a unique opportunity that these people have never had. Exactly. To study these things. As you said, on a silver platter, here's yeah. this little experiment. This case study. Right. And so they're coming out of the woodwork to try to to get on board for this. There's one guy in the back who's like, I am an expert on teeth. Please <laughs> and let me oh, look at her. please God, somebody fix her teeth. The people involved in all the study get the mom a, a good lawyer. And, and basically the lawyer says she was so mistreated and abused and she was basically a victim too. And so she got she got off. She didn't, she wasn't charged with child abuse, which... Okay. <sighs> I mean, I agree that when you are victimized, it makes it very difficult yes, it's, to... Yes, it's very hard. So, oh, where to begin? And I'm not going to, I'm not going to begin as such. I'm going to, there are lots and lots of names of people who are involved in all of this. So I'm going to throw a few names around, but I'm not going to list everybody. The way I look at this, it's horrible. This poor little girl comes out of this, this nightmare. And then you think, okay, now she's going to be saved. And these people are going to save her. Well, the way I look at it is... I'm sure there were some good people helping. I'm sure there were good people involved. But I think there were also people who had ulterior motives. Right. To like become, oh, famous because they did this study on this girl and for whatever reason. You know what? For those people, I have a message for you. I know Jeannie's name and literally no other names from this case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you didn't get your name in the spotlight. Suck it. And the up and down roller coaster crap that happens over the next several years until, you know, into her adult really Mm -hmm. is just crazy right let me just I'll just throw out a couple upon Jeannie's admission to Children's Hospital David Riggler was a therapist and University of Southern California psychology professor who was the chief psychologist at the hospital and Howard Hansen um, who was then the head of psychiatric division and an early expert on child abuse Um, They kind of jumped in and they were like the first two to head up Jeannie's care. Um, The following day, they assigned a physician by the name of James Kent. That is a name that you kind of read a lot when you read about her, who was a doctor who was going to take care of 
some of her physical stuff. He was another early advocate for child abuse awareness, and they were the ones who first did all the examinations ever. Um, most of the information that they received on Jeannie's early life came from the police investigation into Jeannie's parents. And even after its conclusion, there was a large number of unresolved questions about what exactly did happen. They just don't know. Well, sure. When they first started to try to interact with Jeannie, she... Okay, sisters, there's all kinds of stuff out there. You can... There are there are documentaries. There are movies based on... I remember watching a documentary. The, one? the Mockingbird Does Not Sing or something is the name of the movie hmm. that's based on Jeannie. I mean, they changed all the names. Something about Mockingbird Doesn't Sing. If this interests you, there are all kinds of things out there, some of which are, are Mockingbird based... Mockingbird Don't Sing. Mockingbird Don't Sing. It's, it was... Is that the one we watched? No. No, we watched an actual documentary. Yeah, it was yeah. an actual... Uh, Nova something and there are lots of books written about her too but there's lots if you if you're into like watching videos about it yeah there's lots out there so if you want to know kind of the many kinds of experiments they did she had a very peculiar for lack of a better term because she had not developed how to use her extremities right the way she moved yes she moved they called it a bunny walk oh she would hold her hands oh I do remember that she would yeah she kind of t-rex arm yeah wouldn't she like tiptoe yeah wouldn't she She like walked very yeah because well think about also she had congenital leg problems exactly so there was and uh, sources disagree on whether or not she was actually had some mental delay you can't tell you cannot you, tell at that point yeah and and it depends on who you listen to because some of them say there were certain signs that showed that she did but then some of the other people who actually worked with her said that the way she did learn so quickly but she missed the critical period to yeah. learn language so it depends on who you listen to listen to us you can't tell <laughs> You can't tell. When they when they first started working with her, Jeannie could speak just a few words like blue, orange, oh. mother, and go. Oh! But mostly she remained completely silent. I wonder where she got blue and orange. I think it was something, maybe it was the raincoats. Maybe the sky? Maybe. And she would, when she would get stressed, she would urinate or defecate. Sure. The people who were involved in the research called her, quote, the most profoundly damaged child they had ever seen. That tracks. It just breaks my heart. In the very beginning, it seemed like the progress was going to like explode because in the very beginning, there was a whole lot that happened. Jeannie learned how to play. She would play with a ball and, and she learned how to chew. Oh, um, did she get her teeth fixed? You know, that's a good question. I don't know, but they must have. Probably. They must have to help her be able to chew. Yeah. She learned how to dress herself. Wow. And she would especially enjoy music. She loved when they played music. Oh, that's wonderful. She started to draw pictures and she would, even though she wouldn't communicate with words, she would draw pictures. And one of the things that they saw very early on was that... My heart. I know. heart. They would give her pictures of a story and she would put them in order, (gasps) even though she couldn't tell the story. So, okay. So this goes to a really cool concept where like things like art and music are instinctive. Exactly. That's... Oh, my heart. I know. I know. I know. Okay, so within a month... Wait, I do need to say something about art. Okay, Because good. in terms of therapy, art therapy is extremely important, especially for kids, where if you are in a situation where you know a little kid who probably needs therapy, but you're like, well, they probably wouldn't do good with regular therapy, express that to your therapist. Yes. And even like, I mean, there are licensed art therapists, but also, I mean, I'm not a licensed art therapist, but I've taken workshops, I've done, I mean, I have an art and you degree. Have an art art degree yeah. yeah so I've done a lot of research on like art therapy techniques 
And you can work that in and that makes, it gives a voice to a kid who might not know how the vocabulary works in terms of talking about what they need to talk about. Mm -hmm. So that's That's just a a a real world note. Yeah, Yeah. good plug for art therapy. Okay, so within a month of her admission to Children's Hospital, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Oklahoma named Jay Shirley and a specialist surely and don't call me surely (laughs) and a specialist in extreme isolation took an interest in the case so he that was one of that was his thing he studied social isolation man Um, i bet he is salivating right now let's do this Shirley noted that Jeannie was the most severe case of isolation that he had ever studied or heard about, and he had been doing it for 20 years. Hey, so everyone who's complaining about quarantine right now? Yeah, yes. That's it could a be good worse. Point. That's a really good point. So he studied her for a year and a half, and he would come like for three-day visits, and, and he would observe her, and he also did some major sleep studies on her. Part of this about naming all these names is that all of these people were coming to study her. And even though they're trying, you know, like there's this part of you that's like, oh good, now she's in good care. Think also though that these people were always poking her and prodding her. Well, and, and that goes back to, I think we I mentioned something about it when I talked about Operation Midnight Climax, where like even well-meaning people, I just wanted to say that You again, just had to say that um, word. That like even well-meaning people can sometimes look at their test subjects and stop seeing them as people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that was really easy with Jeannie because she acted so Didn't different. act human, yeah. I mean, yeah. that is something that everyone has to be aware of, that how do we treat people who are different? Right. One of the things that I'm going to throw in now because of what you just said, though, is that in several of the articles, there was something about how she had, Jeannie had a way of looking at people and drawing people in that people reported being very drawn to her, like, mm. like she was communicating with them without talking, and that people... There were several examples where people would give her something, like strangers <laughs> would like give her something that she wanted and she somehow was expressing it without speaking. She was, I, she was telepathy. Like, maybe she was. I don't know. But just the look that she would get on her face. Well, or that whatever. goes back to, I can't remember which episode it was, but we had a whole episode on nonverbal communication. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you don't really pick that up, but you can also sort of pick up like what people want with uh-huh. how they're they're like orienting their bodies well, and or she stuff had like that. To learn, Episode 11. Good job. She had to learn how to do that. Yes. Because she didn't know the words because she had missed that critical right. step, so right. to speak. So when he was doing these sleep studies on her, Shirley was... <laughs> Dr. Shirley. <laughs> Dr. Shirley. Um, He's like, hey, I had a girl's name and I didn't torture a kid exactly. for 13 years. Exactly. Among other things, he was trying to see figure out if she uh, was on the spectrum or not. Because that was one of the early right. um, diagnoses. And, and he came to the conclusion that she was not on the autism spectrum. And later, some other researchers concurred with that. He did note that she had a high level of emotional disturbance. Duh, you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah, huh? Um, but he could not find any sustained brain damage or wow. that or what? that she was born retarded, so to speak. She did not have Homegirl did not have an amygdala, probably. We've talked we've talked about the oh, God, amygdala yeah. being like where the trauma lives. How would you even Oh my God. I don't know. Because that goes back to what you said before. She thought it was normal. But she had to have like because she was afraid of dogs and cats. So sure. she had learned the fear from her dad barking at her and yes. growling. I mean, there was a baseline terror that yeah. she lived with. Right. Oh, God. I and discomfort. I, mean, I just can't even. Okay. She did have some sleep 
spindles, they call them. What? Sleep spindles. Bursts of rhythmic or repetitive neural activity that kind of led him to believe that she was a bit delayed mentally. Hmm. However, Susan Curtis is another name I'm going to mention again in a minute. Susan Curtis is like one of the really good guys, I think. At least that's what I got from reading it. It was early in Susan's career. She was still learning, basically. In the last episode, or the one before that, where a grad student got caught in a bad study. Oh, that was Operation Midnight Climate. No, that was, well, that was yours, whatever you talked about during that. Yeah. Yeah. So she, as an academic, she was a good guy. Monster study? Was that the monster study? Monster study, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. But Susan believed that Jeannie was at least average intelligence and perhaps above it. Was she the one that said like, oh, because of how quickly she adapted? Exactly. Okay. So I'm just going to throw a couple of the names out just for sake of of arguing. Jean Butler, very quickly, Jean Butler became her tutor, like her academic tutor, so to speak, while these other people were dealing with, you know, her sleep and her and her physical issues and all that Jean's she, like we're gonna Jean learn Jean was like a little teacher yeah. yeah and in June of 1971 she started to get permission to take Jeannie out on day trips and Gina she would Jean. she would take her to her home and so this kind of developed kind of an unhealthy relationship so to speak at least that's what some people thought uh, to the point where then Jean was never married she didn't have children of her own however she did have a significant other who she talks about as her boyfriend later on but they thought she was like getting too close to Jeannie? Like she wanted her to be her child kind of thing. Okay, let her adopt her. Well, that's kind of what you would think. She petitioned for foster custody. Oh. And she actually got it at first, but there were objections from the people at the hospital because they thought it was an unhealthy connection. Like too much enmeshment going on. I know, that's a look, Anna. And that's, You know what? They just didn't want their test subject taken away. That And that's what Jean said. Uh-huh. Jean said. And so so for the rest of the story, there's this back and forth, people saying other people are taking advantage of Jeannie. And unfortunately, it really never got resolved all the way. And so Jeannie basically lost in God. the end. This is like in Matilda, which I haven't seen in a long time, where yes. Miss, what was her name? Cotton or something. I what? can see her character, but I don't remember her name. And Matilda was such a cute little girl. Just that little... Miss Honey. That's a perfect name. Yeah. It's like that sort of situation. Right. So I'm just going to kind of go zip zip. Okay. That Jean was her temporary foster mom, basically. And she was living with her. That's where the boyfriend gets mentioned. Because boyfriend moves in. Who Boyfriend's like a psychiatrist or something. So it's all good. They're all psychiatrists together or something. <laughs> and because Jean thought that maybe with a two-parent household, it, oh, they, might, sure. they might get custody. That's why boyfriend moved in. And then shortly after, they got married. Maybe boyfriend just wanted access to Jeannie. Because uh, he was a psychiatrist, a sociologist, or something. Ooh, man, you see the negative in. Listen, things. I yeah. am. Ooh, I. Mm-hmm. I don't like anyone in this story. There's a lot of people. I'm going to throw in another name. David Riggler is on board now. He's another. I think he's a psychiatrist who's also studying her. And they started. He and his wife. They wanted to get custody, foster custody, away from Jean. Okay. Okay. He's linked to the hospital, of course. And so there's this big thing. And then, yes, indeed, Jean loses foster care. And Jeannie goes back to the hospital very briefly, then goes to live with the Wrigglers. And the Wrigglers just intended to keep her for just a very short time. But it turned into like three years that she stayed with the Wrigglers. And then what happened in this, I don't know, saga, is that mom gets her eyes fixed. What? And starts to interact with with Jeannie again and starts to have this ongoing, like, they visit, even while she was living with Jean Butler. Yeah. 
mom was visiting. And so Butler and mom kind of became buddies. What? Yeah. So then when Jeannie got moved to the Wrigglers, Jean, obviously, Jean Butler was upset and started kind of this campaign against the Wrigglers with mom. What? Yeah, it gets worse. What? And so eventually mom sues everybody. And the way the story goes is Jean Butler was kind of behind that. That's the way the story goes. you don't have a leg to stand on here. And for a while, guess who got to go back home with mom? No. No. What? Mm -hmm. She lived with mom for just a few months until mom said she couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew that. And so then Jean became a ward again of the state. And so, honestly, from the time she was about 18 years old until currently, because all the sources I saw imply that she is currently still alive. Sure. Because she would be in her 60s at this point. And she is still a ward of the state. She's living in a home Mm -hmm. that's owned by the state as a ward of the state. Just one note about Susan Curtis. She began working with Jeannie's language. She's a linguist. In October of 1971. And she was kind of the person who kept cheering for her and kept saying, you know, she didn't think she was as delayed as people thought. One of her quotes was, Language and thought are distinct from each other. For many of us, our thoughts are verbally encoded. For Jeannie, her thoughts were virtually never verbally encoded. But there are many ways to think. She also said, quote, she was smart. She could hold a set of pictures so they told a story. Oh. She would create all sorts of complex structures from sticks. And she had many other signs of intelligence. The lights were definitely on for Jeannie. Oh, cool. So she obviously was one of the people who had a very strong bond with Jeannie and did seem to want what was best for her. Sure. But in the end, she lost all control because of this back and forth, back and forth thing. There have been some follow-up stories, you know, done about her, like at her 27th birthday party. A journalist named Russ Reimer wrote some articles for The New Yorker about Jeannie. And basically, it was all dark. You know, that she was mentally ill and and depressed and just living a terrible life. Okay. However, some of the, the articles that I read said that she is actually living a somewhat, for her, normal life. As a ward of the state, but still. I mean, honestly. She's what, out of she's, the spotlight. She's just yeah, as and, a life. And she, yeah. she was at rock bottom for 13 years. It can kind of only go up from Maybe there. That's really true. That is really true. And even the people who were involved, like as they were interviewed through the years, the researchers were all somehow marred by this experience. Oh, sure. It would have to be traumatic. Absolutely. To see that kind of trauma done to a child. Well, and there's got to be some, because, I mean, this was one of the cases that led to a lot of those kind of concrete socialization theories of, like, the critical period and stuff like that. Like, this is a case that people point to a lot to say, like, this is why we know that for sure. But before you know that for sure, it's got to be really disheartening to work with someone to, like, teach them language and stuff. And it takes either a really long time or it never works the way you think. I mean, that's got to be really, like, discouraging and disheartening. So I guess technically you could say that they did sort of prove that there is a critical time when we develop that language. There's a whole lot, if you want to learn more about like the, there's a whole lot about when they studied her brain, about how the right hemisphere and the left oh, hemisphere yeah. weren't doing what they would normally do in a person who had a uh, normal socialization and all that. How she, much language did she eventually acquire? Not very much. She used sign language a lot. Oh, interesting. 
And she developed some of her own sign language, and then she also learned some sign language. But her vocabulary was very, very, very limited. And that was the other thing, that even though it it did seem to prove that critical period, the researchers all repeatedly said, this is such an unclear conclusion because of all the trauma and everything. Yeah, it's going to muddy the waters. Yeah, so many factors. There was just um, one other quote I wanted to read to you as I finish, and that is from the documentary. It's a Nova documentary. And it is really good. That's what we watched in grad school. And this is a quote. What do we take away from this really sad story? Look, there's an ethical dilemma in this kind of research. If you want to do rigorous science, then Jeannie's interests had to come in second. If you only cared about helping Jeannie, then you wouldn't do hardly any of the scientific research that they did. So what are you going to do? To make matters worse, the two roles, scientists and therapists, were combined in one person in her case. So I think future generations are going to study Jeannie's case not only for what it can teach us about human development, but also for what it can teach us about the rewards and the risks of conducting such an experiment. You know, what he's saying is the scientist should not have been the therapist. No. There should have been two very separate roles there. But it seemed like whenever there was someone who really did care about her as a person, then they somehow got slapped off to the side by the people who wanted to do all the experiments. Well, sure. Yeah. So is this kind of a lose-lose, unfortunately? Well, yeah, Um, when they're putting scientific progress in front of her needs. So it goes back to the unethical thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But the idea of the socialization that Anna started this episode with and the idea of that this child was not only not taught how to speak, but she didn't have that social interaction of speaking with, you know, doing the mutual gazing, doing that, you know, all of that stuff that helps us to learn how to be social beings. Ugh. It's very sad. It's a very sad story. I hope she's like somewhere painting right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she took, you know, it said that she really took to the art thing. So maybe that's how she found her solace. I hope so. I hope so too. We'll just jam into some tunes and painting something. Mm -hmm. Jeannie, wherever you are, we salute you. You're a strong, independent woman. It's amazing what a person can live through. Right. If nothing else, like... It goes back to what you said when you were talking about the feral children having strong survival instincts. Yeah. Because for her to just stay alive through all that, that is amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to sum this one up. Well, uh, let's pivot for a second to some cases. We're running a little short on time, so I might not do all of these, certainly, that I have. But I've created a little game for you. Oh, no. I know I love, I know you love how I have games. I hate when Anna pulls out a game on me. I'm going to give you uh, either a name or a short description, and you're going to tell me what animal these kids were raised by. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, I'll give you one that might be, might be a softball. John Sebunya from Uganda was raised by. <laughs> I'm totally blank. Uganda. What's, what kind of animals they This have is in like. Uganda? No. Say his name again. John Sebunya. He was raised by monkeys. Monkeys. He was a toddler when his dad killed his mother. <gasps> and instead of going into a care facility, he went to live with fur vet monkeys. Just decided. Like he just... Did he dad left. like put him in the jungle? or No, dad... dad killed himself. Oh, he killed his mom and himself. Yeah. Uh, so for two and years... And baby just escaped into he just the left. wilderness. He just left. And for two years, he learned how to forage and travel. And the so monkeys protected him. He's Mowgli. He was seven when he was uh, brought back to civilization, and he could only cry and demand food. So the article I was reading was from 2012, and he was 28. 
So by then he had been fully rehabilitated and he was wow. back in society. So how old, do we know how old he was when he went into the jungle? It says he was a toddler, but then he said for two years he learned how to forage and travel, but he was seven when he got out. So maybe he was like four. So quite literally, he like probably wandered away when the trauma happened. Probably, yes. Oh my God, that's... Um, and that's not that long ago. No. This, so it's not like these things just happened in the olden days. This one's from 2009. A 14-year-old boy in the Soviet Union. Give me a guess on an animal. Wolves? Nope. Soviet Union. Something the wolves hunt. Sheep? Yes, it's <laughs> sheep. Really sheep. Oh my yes. gosh. He was also known as Sheep Boy. Oh. <laughs> that would have maybe given me a clue. <laughs> I know. I didn't want to give you that one. That would have been a softball. Uh, he was found in the former Soviet Union, living in a in sheep flock, where he had been raised for eight years. Uh, obviously, had no communication skills and could not use the toilet. Well, you wouldn't even know what a toilet was. I know. Ivan Mishukov, a six-year-old boy in Russia. What do you think he was raised by? Wolves. I'm just gonna keep Close. saying that. Dogs. Wild, wild dogs. He was rescued by the police in 1998. He'd been living with the dogs for two years. Oh my god. He ran from his mother and her abusive alcoholic boyfriend at the age of four. Oh. He earned the dog's trust by giving them food, and in return, the dogs protected them. And he had risen to being the alpha male of the pack. That's a success story right there. In two years, you have upper management written all over you, kid. (laughs) I mean, six. How how much is that in dog years? The dogs were like, this guy's an adult. He probably plays dog taxes and everything. The police caught him by setting a trap for him and the dogs by leaving food in a restaurant kitchen. Wow. But because he'd only been living among the dogs for two years, so he relearned language fairly quickly. And he'd, he'd only been living with the dogs only, for two only years. Only for two years. Oh, I God, mean, that's horrible. Uh, and he studied in military school and he served in the Russian army. So Wow. <laughs> Okay. I wonder uh, if he was the alpha there, too. Now, I think you may have actually made a mention of this when we were talking about this episode. Three Lithuanian boys who were raised by... Bears. Yes. The three Lithuanian bear boys. <laughs> In it's like the three bears. Very. I wonder <laughs> if that's where the boys. story came from. Well, actually, Womp Womp, oh. a report showed that these were false. Oh. But there was one boy who lived in the forest in Lithuania with the Eurasian brown bear. And he was found in the spring of 1663 and then brought to Poland's capital. Wow. Mowgli had a friend that was a bear, too. Blue. Yeah. He Talked was in a the great bear friend. necessities. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if this little guy knew the bear, the bear, necessities. bear necessities. Did you know the bear necessities? Was there a, a panther? Was there a panther? The Bamberg boy in the late 16th century. What do you think he was raised by? Bamberg. I, I'm running out he of He probably animals. survived by drinking milk. Cows? Cattle. Oh my God. And that's literally all I know about this kid. <laughs> he did not have much information They're, on him. I can't picture cows as being very like... Maternal. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, like come hang out with us, dude. <laughs> we'll teach you how to stand in a field and eat grass. Okay. Daniel... How many? This is amazing that there's so many of these little people. Oh, I I picked and choosed. This is not many. There's if you go to the Wikipedia page on feral children, there's a huge list of them, like forty or so. Oh my god! Daniel in 1990 in the Andes. 1990 was raised by goats. Yes. <laughs> How did you know that? I don't know what lives in the mountains. How did you know that? Billy Goats. Andy's Goat Boy. These are very uh, creative <laughs> names, let me just say. 
Uh, he was 12 when he was found. Uh, he lived in the wild for about eight years. It didn't really say why he was out there. He just liked goats. You know what? I guess. He was discovered in the mountains of Peru, raised by goats. He walked and ran on all fours with the mountain goats. <gasps> oh, my God. So, obviously, he had abnormal bone growth. He had calluses on his palms and soles. Uh, and he drank goat's milk and ate berries and roots. One source I found said that he could communicate with the goats. <gasps> Because he was still a toddler when he first started to be raised by the goats, his language acquisition skills tapped into the goat communication. Oh my gosh. So he could like talk to them, obviously, but he like could understand some of their goat noises and imitate them back. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. He is the goat master. He is. Oh my God. Goat boy. Okay, okay, okay. Trayan Caldarar in Romania, he was found in 2002, was raised by, he was known as Mowgli, actually. I would think that would be a bear. No? He was called the Romanian dog boy. <gasps> he was raised by dogs. From ages four to seven, Trayan lived without his family. He was found at the age of seven and was described as a three-year-old due to undernutrition. Aww. His mother had left her home because of domestic violence, and Trayan ran from the home sometime after his mother left. He lived in the wild and took shelter in a cardboard box. He suffered from uh, infected wounds, poor circulation, Aww. and children's disease caused by vitamin D deficiency. When Trayan was being cared for, he would usually sleep under the bed, and he wanted to eat all the time. And in 2007, Trayan was being taken care of by his grandfather and was doing well in third grade at school. Aww. Yeah. So again, like I know we're saying all a lot. People are resilient as all get out. Oh, yeah. Like holy cow. Yeah. So whatever you're going through, you can get through it. You can get through this. You can get through this quarantine. You might look at your children right now and think that they are feral because they have not been at school. (laughs) But holy cow. (laughs) But you can survive this. Okay. I've got two more. Do you want the one where the animal's real weird first? Or do you want the one where I have way more information first? Save the really weird one for last. Okay. So Kamala and Amala from Bengal, India were raised by... Tigers? Wolves. Oh, my wolf thing. Okay. Allegedly. So this one's interesting. So as the story goes, a reverend in India, Reverend Joseph Amrito Lil Singh, was the rector of a local orphanage. And in 1926, he published an account that he had been given these two girls from a man who lived in the jungle. Amala was 12 and Kamala was 18 months. Is that right? That's what I found in the sources. I don't know. Okay. So later, the reverend's story changed to that he had rescued the girls from a wolf den himself. So already we've got some inconsistencies here. Mm -hmm. Basically, he kept a diary of the account of these girls as he raised them. They wouldn't allow themselves to be dressed. They scratched and bit people who tried to feed them. They didn't eat cooked food. Uh, They walked on all fours. They had, again, calluses on their palms and knees. Uh, They were mostly nocturnal. They had aversion to sunshine, could see you very well in the dark. Wow. Um, Said they had acute sense of smell and ability to hear. He said they enjoyed the taste of raw meat and would eat out of a bowl in the ground and that they were insensitive to cold and heat and they had no human emotions apart from fear. And at night they would howl like wolves to their family. Oh my gosh. Uh, From a 1929 book called What Are You? Which seems (laughs) a little insensitive, I think. Uh, (laughs) I don't think that's politically correct. (laughs) It says... I once heard a missionary tell of seeing two girls who had been rescued from a den of wolves in Asia. As babes, they had been abandoned, and in a measure duplicating the young lives of Romulus and Remus, who were fictional 
mm-hmm. wolf children, uh, had been mothered by a she-wolf. The children ran fleetly on all fours. They snarled and bit at their captors. The forehead retreated. The lower face protruded in unmistakable likeness to the foster parent beast that had shown them more of their mother love than their human mothers had ever shown. There were even photos of the girls acting like wolves. Oh my gosh. So, basically, this is a hoax. <laughs> um... <laughs> There was a French surgeon named Sergei Aroles who, who made a book debunking it. Uh, he said that the only witness to substantiate all this was the reverend himself and that he probably did this to get funding for his orphanage and that the diaries he wrote were not written until years after the girls died. Uh, they both died fairly young. I think the 18-month-old died like toddlerhood and the 12 year old lived to be like 17 um the photos were taken after the girl's death as well the reverend had just asked two local girls to like pose for these pictures according to a medical doctor in charge they had none of the anomalies that i just mentioned like Mm. the be the the acute hearing and and seeing and the nocturnal vision and none of that they weren't werewolves Uh. they weren't werewolves (laughs) we're back to that okay yeah According to several testimonies, Singh used to beat Kamala in order to make her act like he had described oh in God. front of visitors. So there's just there's just a lot. Also, Kamala was afflicted with a neurodevelopmental disorder called Rett syndrome, which affects like locomotion and stuff like that mm-hmm. and mental development. So there's, I mean, it's a horrible story. It so is. sometimes these stories are not true. Mm-hmm. And finally, a boy, Hadara, was lost in the Sahara Desert. What do you think he was raised by? What lives in the desert? I don't know. Ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What okay. do you think they called him, Mom? Ostrich boy? Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed, they ostrich called him Ostrich boy. boy. These he, are creative names. He was lost by his parents in the desert at the age of two and was adopted by ostriches. How at, the heck do you lose your two-year-old the, in the desert? At the age of 12, he was rescued and taken back to society and his parents. He later married and had children. Uh, yeah, a lot of sources I saw said that's probably not true either. <laughs> because it's ostriches. <laughs> There was like a book How written. How would an ostrich... I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So anyway, just ostrich if you're boy. looking into this, take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Because like I said, even the ones that are well documented aren't well documented. <laughs> so yeah, that's... Whew. We've been Ooh. recording for a long time. This one might be way longer than I expected. Yeah, at the beginning you said it was short. I know. Whoops. You fibbed. I did. Should I thank the listeners, please, for do, patiently for the listening love of God. to the feral children's stories? Yeah, man. Yes, we thank you for listening, and we uh, encourage you if you're feeling like your life is a little feral right now to realize that you are strong. So hopefully, this puts things in perspective. There you go. <laughs> Count your blessings, or something yes. like that. But we want to count our blessings because you are one of them we are so Aww. grateful that you are listeners and we hope that you will continue to do so and tell your friends about us spread yes. the news tell everyone to listen tune them in to us yes thank you so much for being here for going through this with us <laughs> uh you can find us on twitter instagram facebook all freudian sips pod as well as our site freudiansipspod.com if you want more of us no idea why holy cow we've given you enough <laughs> that's a lot <laughs> If you want to get a hold of us directly, you can email us at freudiansipspod at gmail.com. If you want to talk to us about frail children, please do. <laughs> if you know a werewolf, email us. <laughs> Bring a werewolf. Send me pictures of werewolves. 
We'll believe you. Really. <laughs> we'll we believe will. you. You definitely didn't just get this from Twilight. Uh, so we are on Patreon. If you want to support the show, we're Freudian Sips Pod on there. Please remember, yes, to spread the word about how much you love us to your friends and family. And leave us a nice rating and review if you can do that wherever you're listening. Our theme music is Sweeter Vermouth by Kevin McLeod, And it sounds like this. <laughs> 